This is Shift Run Stop, a fun podcast about games and cultural stuff and comedy and interviews. It's Shift Run Stop, it's episode 42, and we've got with us Elizabeth Sparrow today. Hello, Elizabeth. Hi. Elizabeth is the uh, president of the BCS, which um, stands for, doesn't stand for the British Community Society anymore, does it? What does it stand for? That's right. We, we've got a new name, which is Chartered Institute for IT, mm-hmm. which we think really encapsulates much more what we're actually about. Because uh, one of the things we talk about is about enabling the information society. And that sounds very grand, doesn't it? And uh, perhaps it doesn't sound very techy for people that are geeks. But um, really what we're about is a huge range of things, a huge range of activities. But underpinning everything we do, really, is the fantastic vision, really, of what IT and information can do in, in society in general. Mm. So that's why we describe ourselves as enabling the information society um we've dropped the british and we've dropped the computer um we're much much more global in 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 outlook today you know i I have to ask the obvious question which is it's called the Chartered institute for it you're still referring to it as bcs what's the what's the kind of relationship between bcs and Chartered institute for it yeah, uh, we've kept BCS because BCS is so well known mm-hmm. amongst you know people that work in, in IT and computing in the UK particularly. Sure. So BCS is well known. I like to describe it like the BBC, <laughs> <laughs> which we don't really ever do. We call now British Broadcasting Corporation. B- BBC is sure. what's known as. Or the other one is IBM, of course. So we've kept BCS. It's well known. Um, and it's it's such a clear brand for us that it was felt it felt right to keep it. But we always describe ourselves today as Chartered Institute for IT. And it's quite fun to say the BCS stands for the Chartered Institute for IT as well. That's a great, great kind of surreal thing to say. Yeah. It contains another abbreviation, which is quite good. Well, it? It's a nested. <laughs> yeah, they just go on forever. Um, so you're saying about some of the um, campaigns that you have been running, and um, I was quite interested in, I got an email today from somebody at your organisation, with a quote from you in it, I think, about the Savvy Citizens campaign. Can you tell us a bit yes. about that? Yeah. Well, we've got um, four um, campaigns running, particularly this year, that um, is particularly my interest as a, as a president, and it's, it's one of the themes I've been following. And um, the four projects are all about how we can help everyone in society to get more out of IT and computing. And Savvy Citizens is aimed at people who are, they perhaps made it onto the internet, but they don't really quite understand the wealth of information that's there. Or um, maybe they'd like to have a go at buying things online, but they're not quite sure how to do it. There's actually 10 million adults in the UK that actually don't use the internet. I mean, 10 million, it's a large number. And I'm not talking about retired people there. I'm talking about people of working age that don't yet use the internet. So Savvy Citizen is... um, What we do is every couple of months we feature a particular topic... So um, we're just about to go on to the topic of work, um, but we've had things like culture or citizenship or health. Every couple of months we feature a topic and we have blogs about that topic, we have videos, interviews, all sorts of things, a whole raft of things. And we have some fun with it too, because we have, you know, Facebook app, we have competitions, Twitter, the rest of it, you know, have all sorts of things focused. And we bring that information together on a microsite. 
Given the, the target audience for this is people who aren't online, how do you get them to the information that you're putting out there for them? It seems like a kind of a bootstrapping problem. Indeed. Well, uh, Savvy Citizen isn't actually aimed at people who aren't online yet. We're doing other things for them, OK? okay. Savvy Citizen is very much for people who've got online just about, but they're not too sure what to do when they're there. Okay. Or perhaps they just need some more help. I mean, one of the other projects you might be interested in that we are just... just about launching uh, now is called Digital Revolutions. What we're asking people to do, um, we're asking uh, anyone to do this, could be anywhere in the world, but it doesn't have to be um, professional or anything. We're asking anyone to make uh, a film no longer than three minutes long to tell the world how important information and IT is in their lives or what impact it's having on their lives. So we've launched a competition Anyone can enter a three-minute film showing what information and IT does for their lives. Uh, we've teamed up with two bodies that are really expert in this field. One is DocFest, which is the, the leading um, film festival for documentary films, probably in Europe. It takes place in Sheffield in November. We're working very closely with them. And we're also working with a, film co- a firm called Crossover, who have a lot of expertise in this area. They're running a whole series of workshops for anyone that wants to come along to find out about how to make films of this type. And uh, then DocFest are helping us promoting it. And this November, we will actually be announcing our winners at the festival. We have a slot there. We'll all be along to announce the results. So this competition opened just a few weeks ago. Runs till mid-October. That's uh, digital revolutions, and I think something that could really be of, of uh, mm. hopefully, a big success for us. Since for episode forty, you gave me a special shift run stop quiz. Mm-hmm. I thought I'd for episode forty-two give you a special red dwarf quiz. Oh God! <laughs> you called my bluff. Because apparently, it's your area of expertise and and one of your deep geek knowledge areas well it's certainly something I talk about a lot on this podcast <laughs> I freely admit to that um, yeah well we'll see uh, please forgive me listeners when I get everything wrong question one what is Rimmer's middle name? Uh, it's uh, Arnold Judas Rimmer. Yay! Mm. Question two. What is Lister's rank? Um, I think he might be second technician, but Rimmer always says that he's superior, and I think Rimmer's second technician as well. Hence my confusion. Second technician, I'm going with. Lister's uh, rank on board Red Dwarf was mm. technician third class, so I think you're right that mm. Rimmer was one above him. Okay. Right, so I've given you indirectly given you the right answers. Okay, um, this one I think you'll know. Question three: What was Cat's mother called? Oh, ah, well, I think you've got Frankenstein written down. Oh dear, you're cleverer than me. I've got Frank- Frankenstein written down. Frankenstein is not technically Cat's oh, mother. Oh, you're right, because there were millions of years between the two. Exactly. How would that be oh, possible? All right. <laughs> All right, bloody hell. I like this quiz. You get, you get bonus points for being cleverer. But you knew what I meant. Yeah, yeah, no, I know. Mm, okay. 
So, speaking of uh, the the Felis Sapien race, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> what what's the name of the god that they worship? Mm. Isn't it Derek Custer? No, that's the other one. Oh, it's oh. close. You're, 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 Cloister? Yeah, is that Cloister. The Cloister? Yeah. Cloister the Stupid. Cloister the Stupid. Derek Custer is from another episode um, where Rimmer gets forgets the names of everyone because he's been on his own for 400 years ah. and they, they all walk in and he goes Derek Custer <laughs> <laughs> anyway yes okay almost close to the stupid who will lead us to the promised land of course yep um, okay this question goes outside of the world of uh, Red Dwarf and yes. brings us back to the real world mm-hmm. what year is it about the British Empire <laughs> no well, that would be awesome um, um, in what year was Red Dwarf first broadcast Mm, is it 1987? Close. Oh, it was the 15th of February, 1988. Oh, it's almost 1987. Do you remember it? No, not at all. No, I didn't start watching it until about 92. I think I'm about the same. Mm. Well, whenever Series 4 was on. It's a bit old for us, I think, when we were like... Yeah, we were only 9, nine or yeah. 10 or something. Yeah. I think I was 10 when it first started. Yeah. Um, and I think probably by the time I was... Thirteen. I was getting quite into mm. sort of series three, series four. Mm. Do you remember the first episode? Because question six uh-huh. is, mm-hmm. what are the first four lines of huh. the end, which is series one, episode one? Um, the first four lines. That's the first hard. lines of the of the program. Oh God! Uh, is it um, to do with the chicken soup machine? <laughs> is it? It sort is, of is. Is it, is it something to do with? Is that a cigarette you're smoking this to know it's a chicken? Eventually, although oh, this is just before that, that. It oh. leads up to that. Uh, I'll give you a clue. Lister's singing. It's something annoying. And... Um, yeah, it's that. <laughs> <laughs> to Ganymede need and Titan, yes. yes, sir, I've been around. Yes. And then uh, Rimmer says, Lister. And Lister says, hmm. <laughs> and Rimmer says, have you ever been hit on the head with a welding mallet? <laughs> no, we'll shut up then. And then it goes into the whole chicken soup, vending machine. Right. Is that the cigarette you're smoking? No, it's a... No, it's a chicken. <laughs> <laughs> how did you get interested in um, in technology and how did you sort of arrive where you are today? Because it is, it is quite an unusual position for a woman to be in, I suppose, still. Um, actually, in BCS has a proud history, so I think I'm the fourth uh, oh. woman who's been a president, so uh, by no means a trailblazer on that one. Um, I first got involved in, in uh, IT through the I bit rather than the T bit, mm-hmm. um, because I was always fascinated in information and the way information was used. So I'm less of a technology geek and more of an information geek, if you like. When I started to work, I first worked at the British Library um, and then became more involved in the T-bit and gradually migrated over to IT. I really get a kick out of working with other people and for some reason, perhaps with my maths background, I don't know, I always felt very comfortable working with geeks. Mm. (laughs) I'm not... Uh, an incredible technology expert myself. I have to put my hand up and say I'm not. But I like to feel I understand geeks and how they work and how they think about the world. And as I went on in my career, I was very fortunate to uh, be promoted a number of times and ended up running IT departments in different organisations. The real kick for me is is being the leader and, and 
what you need to be a leader and what it takes to actually motivate and inspire mm. uh, and take people forward, even through times of, of difficulty as mm. well as the easy times. Yeah. So did you have role models growing up who were women? Um, because we talked to Sue Black about this as well, didn't we, that it's very difficult um, when everybody that you see in the places that you want to be do tend to be men. It may seem strange to say, but I just did my own thing. (laughs) And I didn't particularly um, register that I was the only woman, Uh particularly. Um, I think as I went through my career, um, there were a number of people that inspired me Mm. Um, by the way they led, by the way they managed. Um, And a number of the people I worked with, I look around now and I see they are in leading positions, Mm. you know. Um, A number of... I worked in government for a while Mm. and um, a number of the people I worked with then have got really important positions. Um, I remember one guy who is now, I think, CEO at Bernardo's, Mm. who used to run the prison service, um, that is a phenomenal job. I mean, if you think about the challenges of actually running the prison service in the UK, mm. it's, it's uh, you know, the responsibilities that you've got for um, looking after all those people, trying to actually um, you know, help them develop into uh, citizens that will find some satisfaction, want to stay out of prison in the future, the, the, uh, the negative publicity when anything goes wrong... Uh, all the difficulties. I mean, the, I used to look at guys sometimes who were in had jobs like that. I think, you know, how on earth do you do a job mm. that is so difficult and demanding? And it must be relatively thankless as well. I mean, if you're doing it well, nobody notices. And as soon as there's any problem or mistake, as you say, you get you get pounced on. You're absolutely right. And uh, I think the social media age has added more to that now. <laughs> you know, because any little thing that goes wrong, or you know, it sort of it. It goes viral, doesn't it? Just sort of, you know, bursts away. Um, so they are thankless jobs, I think, you know. And, and uh, in some ways, sometimes being the president of BCS can be like that too, you know. Um, but it, you just, I guess, have to have more of a commitment and um, a conviction, really, about the job you are doing and why you are doing it uh, and a clear idea of where you want to go with the organisation, yeah. In your career, Elizabeth, you've worked both in the public sector and in the private sector um, I'm stunned at the, the kind of the breadth of, of that experience and also the scale that you, you must have worked at in some of those jobs mm. and it makes me think that government contracts have a bit of a bad reputation what is it about I mean is it the scale of the complexity once something gets to a, a sufficient size that it's just impossible to deliver on time and to budget or were you able to kind of um, buck that trend and, and get stuff done uh, kind of on time and in budget. What, what are your kind of experiences with that that world of big IT projects? I think my own my own experience, my recipe for success, if you like, and and I was fortunate. I did have some successes. I think my recipe is a firm but very soundly based working relationships with all your suppliers. Mm-hmm. That may sound a basic lesson, but it's one where often um, people still fall down because of the pressure on government to save money, to be able to demonstrate that they have taken the supplier to task. You know, I mean, the media is, is full of um, this sort of comment, you know, that if only the government officials hadn't been so soft, you know, and hadn't signed away a million pounds when they could have got what they needed for £10, and, you know, if, if only they were tougher. Yes, that's right. You do have to control and manage contracts 
carefully. But equally, um, you know, if you don't develop that sort of uh, human being relationship with your supplier so that you can sit down and frankly talk about when things don't go right, right, or when you can challenge them to go just that little bit further outside their comfort zone to really deliver something great for your organisation, then, you know, you're, you're very often on the road to failure. Um, so... It, it is sort of striking the right balance in the type of um, working relationship you develop with your suppliers. In terms of letting contracts, um, my own feeling now looking back is that um, smaller contracts are better than these mega contracts. Um, the mega contracts, I think, are so difficult to manage effectively. Mm-hmm. Uh, And in government, you very often find that a lot of key people are moved around after a year or two in a job. And, of course, mega projects, maybe five or ten years. And so you can very easily lose the key people, not just in the supplier side, but within government as well. Um, So looking back, I personally feel that, yep, you know, cutting the contracts down into smaller chunks would probably have been better. Um, But you're quite right in the question you ask me, you know, the the pressures on you in the public sector to get it right, the complexity and the scale of the projects you're dealing with, um, you don't very often get quite that um, complexity in in the private sector. And I've worked in the private sector, I've seen them, you know, so I feel I can talk now with some confidence about that, you know. When you're in a private sector company, there is one, there is a clear objective, which is to make money, to make a profit. Um, and although it's not quite as simple as that, I know, it is much easier to define what your measures of success are. When you're in the public sector, it's much more complex. I was IT director at the Home Office. Now, you know, you tell me, what is the success factor for the Home Office, you know? Is it, uh, I don't know, keeping criminals off the streets? Is it... um, Controlling, um, maybe even reducing the, the amount of immigration, possibly? Is it about, um, I don't know, processing cases through the criminal courts fast? Is it minimising headlines? <laughs> I think some home secretaries might say it's that, you know. There's a famous saying from uh, a past home secretary that he would come into work on a day maybe like today when the sky was beautifully blue and he would come in and as he walked to office he would see in a far distance a tiny little bit of cloud and by the time he'd spent an hour at his office there was a huge black thunderstorm ahead and that epitomised what it's like to work in the home office. (laughs) Question seven. In Ace Rimmer's original dimension, what did Lister do for a living? Um, Lister was called Spanners, and he was the uh, sort of engineer. Yeah. Flight engineer. He was. He was Ace Rimmer's trusty engineering mate. Mm. Question eight. In Time Slides, yeah. which is in series three, mm-hmm. what's the name of Rimmer's schoolmate who steals the idea for the tension sheet? Is it Thicky Holden? <laughs> it is Thicky Holden. <laughs> it's Fred Thicky Holden. I'm stunned by your, uh, your <laughs> advanced <laughs> knowledge. Tension sheet. Time Slides one of the first ones I had on video. Question nine. In series five, the crew of Red Dwarf meet a hollow ship. Yes. <laughs> the captain of the hollow ship is called Hercule Platini. Yes. <laughs> IQ 212. <laughs> He's 
amazing, isn't he? He's so funny. Yeah. It's great. What's the name of the ship? That's a good question. Because it's the Nirvana Claim episode, isn't it? Constant guilt-free ship. Um, the name of the ship. Because I was going to ask you what was the ship that Crichton was discovered on, but you know that yeah. far too. <laughs> so I went for the hollow ship instead. That's excellent, yeah. Um... This is a ship, Mr. Rimmer, of superhumans. <laughs> um, what, can you give me a clue? Okay, I'll give you a clue. I'll mm. help you remember it by reminding you that one of the crew mm. comes down onto Red Dwarf or Starbuck. Yes. And um, <laughs> repeatedly um, sort of calls back to the yeah, ship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you can think of what he says when he does that. I think his name might be Banks. Yeah. Yeah, and he says something to whatever the... And then Lister goes... Listen to the dwarves! Display signs of spoiling for a rumble! <laughs> a rather sturdy hollow whip! Um, but I can't remember the name of the ship. What does it start with? E. Oh. It's something like the uh, the Enlightenment or something. It is Enlightenment. Is it really? Well done, you. Yeah. Oh, that was that felt like a guess, but I think secretly. It was a good guess. I knew. And listeners, I can confirm that Layla's not cheating when she's doing it. <laughs> Final question, mm-hmm. question ten. In the episode Quarantine, mm. Crichton really has a crimp put on his day mm. by what? Is that a quote? Episode mm. Quarantine, the uh, mad doctor who. Who um, says things like "eeny, meeny, miny, more <laughs> And then Rimmer goes nuts. Yes, and starts dressing in gingham yeah, and uh, the Mr. Flibble thing. That's hilarious. And then, uh, yeah, and then he make, he puts them all in quarantine, and they all have to be Brussels sprouts. <laughs> um, and, uh, and the luck virus thing, isn't it? That's how yeah. they get out. Yeah. Um, it's a good episode. Yeah. Is it? Can I? So by way of a hint, can yeah. I um, ask if it's... Do you want the phrase? Where, yes, okay. So the phrase is, I have a blank, <laughs> blanked in my blank. That sort of thing can really put a crimp on your day. Oh, um, yeah, does he have a, an axe stuck in his head? It's close. In his back? Yeah. Axe stuck in his back? A medium size. A medium size fire, fire axe. axe. Yes. Buried in my spinal column. <laughs> That's okay. a good scene. Good, yeah, I should have known that. Oh, I love Red Dwarf. And mm. it was very sad when it started getting very rubbish. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a shame, isn't it? Let's never let that happen to ship on stuff. No, that's <laughs> after about the sixth or seventh series. We just kill, kill ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking of killing it rather than ourselves. We could do it on video. <laughs> <laughs> like a suicide pact. Yeah. <laughs> when we've sold out and it's just... It shouldn't have been recommissioned. We'll just kill it off. Yeah, I think so. That was great. Thanks for my red dwarf, please. Well, you did very well. I'm going to give you five points. Okay, so the same as you. Yay! Hey! We're both equally good in our specialist subjects. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) What's um, your bids for the the code on the side of the Starship Enterprise? Uh, uh, Mine was NCC 1701, and I'm saying NCC 1715. It's, it's 1701. Oh, Sorry. Dave. Sorry. And also, that's not any of my PIN numbers, in case anyone is tempted to check. Oh, I bet a lot of people have 1701 <laughs> as, their, as their PIN. So, we're pleased to have Dave back with us. Hello, Dave. Oh, it's lovely to be back. And uh, let, let me tell you what I have found in my travels. Ah. I've got... Let, let's, let's have a little crisp theme segment. Okay. Let's have a little Five Nations of Crisps, because uh-huh. wait till I see, wait till you see what I've got in my box. Okay. <laughs> Um, so, so I bought some uh, sort of Pringles impersonating 
crunch chips. I'm really worried about the state they're going to be in because, as you can see, it used to be a circle and it's now almost um, a triangular prism because it's been crashed in my bag. But, yeah, they're called crunch chips and it's one that's sort of a portmanteau. And uh, it says goo bacon. I don't think bacon's a French word, but there you go. But that that means, in, in French, that means taste bacon. Yeah. Bacon flavour. So, so, shall I? So, oh, but they've they've been uh, they've been wrapped in foil inside. Uh, a few. Okay, they might. Oh, I think I think that's still being a still being a protected tray. Oh, look at this. Oh, well, oh, they are. well packaged. For, for, the, for the listeners' benefit, these are these are much more dimensions of uh, of uh, mini Pringles. These are sort of be- between the size of a full size Pringle and and the newfangled mini Pringle. You know those chocolate things um, that are roughly like Pringles. Mm. They're a bit smaller, kind nice. of between size. They're about that size. Cadbury snaps. Oh, snaps. Yes. yes. And they're, um, I should say they're from Provence. So if you're in the south of France and probably anywhere else in France, try these crunch chips. Two things. I mean, first of all, they're very bacony. Mm. And secondly, they're they're a bit they're a bit uh, they've got a bit more sort of like um, structural integrity mm. than a Pringle, haven't mm. they? Right, assisting their assisting their, mm. their 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 intact arrival here. They've got some heft to them. They're certainly quite a thick Pringle-like. They're quite corn-like. Mm. My own. Uh, extraordinary offering, and people will be wondering why it's taken me so long to really get the hang of this. Um, <laughs> We're not back to the uh, the Walkers. It's World the Walkers flavors clip, flavors cup. I will just mention Walkers aren't resting on their laurels. They are going to like they are bringing out some super crunchy crisps. Just the like autumn, this, like yes. Uh, like uh, so, you know, and like uh, they're, they're they're learning from our continental neighbours. But um, with the work with, with the Walkers World Cup. I think there was uh, there were probably fifteen uh, flavors in total. We tried many of them here. Mm. It felt it, like more. Yeah, it, it felt like more, and yet it was actually less because three of the flavors, well, no, at least four, four of the flavors were specific to actual countries within the UK. Ooh. So uh, English, um, oh, what is it? Roast, roast beef, beef, roast beef and gravy, or, or something, on, yeah. on Yorkshire pudding. Yeah. Um, uh, Scottish haggis. Irish stew and uh, another one that's Welsh, in here somewhere. Welsh rabbit. Welsh rabbit were only available in, in each in their each in their local countries, and people on Snackspot have been swapping them via <laughs> via the post, uh, like in order to join the exclusive fifteen club to say, <laughs> "Oh, I've tried them all." So uh, now pick these up in your trip, then with the English Scottish haggis. No, no. Like, some, someone like someone someone sent me in the in the post for like in, as part of a swap for I think. Um, Maybe some kebab for that flavoured Pringles, but some um, they're quite uh, sort of beefy, a bit meaty. I don't know, not not really. It's <coughs> like chicken flavoured. Mm, not not terribly evocative of the, the the lining of a sheep's stomach or whatever haggis is uh, is made of. I, to be honest, I'm not sure I would know if it was a, a legitimate approximation of the haggis flavour. Mm. In fact. They do have haggis flavoured crisps in Scotland, and they and you know again, I wouldn't really stick my neck out and say I do know what haggis tastes like. They tasted more, they tasted more of something else than that. Um, Irish stew, Irish stew flavour. After you, Leila. Thank you. It's almost identical to the haggis. It's there's no flavour at all in them. It's the same, but with more potato. Mm. <laughs> It's like somebody's crushed up a, a gnaw chicken stock cube. It, it is, it is like, it's, it, there's, a, there's a hint of onion or, or garlic or something in it. But, well, but, I mean, the one I had the highest hope for, hope for Welsh rabbit. Some sort of cheese on toast? Yes, it, well, it, it's the, um, yeah, it's the official Welsh <laughs> national dish. No. Mm. That's better. 
doesn't have dried ice cream van in there at all, so like clearly I'm incorrect. I like that, but it's still not as good as the American uh, cheeseburger, which is the best of all of them. Exactly. Although, do you know, like, um, it's political incorrectness gone mad. What did people vote for as their favourite of the... Because um, the, the results are in now. Oh, dear. Obviously, this is many months since the World Cup actually, uh, actually took place. What did people vote for? Was it controversial? I, 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 from, from memory, I think it was... Um, it was uh, roast uh, beef and Yorkshire oh, pudding. It's the bloody Eurovision all over again. <laughs> exactly, it's block voting. Yeah, and well, and 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 I think England probably does have more people living in it than than, than many of these mm. other countries. So jingoistic, I say. Yes, and that was the flavour that was being sold off for like I don't know sixteen p for a packet of six. Because, you know, once the World Cup was over, people were going, oh, for heaven's sake. <laughs> or particularly, particularly after England had performed so disappointingly, people were going, actually, no, I'm going to, I'm going to burn my, my roast beef crisps in disdain. That pretty much concludes the summer of crisps, or does it? <laughs> um, next time we might be back with some meaty snacks or perhaps these, these Walker's super crunchy things. Oh, they just keep coming and coming. It's just endless. <laughs> well, we've got that to look forward to. For, for you, the, the kind of distinction between somebody who is using IT to its fullest potential and somebody who's maybe disenfranchised and not able to use it, that, that's not presumably based on age or gender. You know, there's something about somebody who, who uses information and is online which is actually not to do with how old they are. Uh, do you know what I mean? Like the, the idea of a digital native is just making me a little bit ill, really. The idea that you know old people don't use the internet just obviously isn't true. Young kids going online are often, you know, everyone says, "Oh, young people are brilliant at the internet and technology. They know exactly what they're doing." You know, if you want, if you want someone to fix something, or if you want someone to tell you how to use a thing, ask a young kid, ask a teenager. But actually, children aren't that savvy about it, and they don't realise that their stuff is going to be cached on Google for the rest of their life. I mean, I've heard other people describe them as millennials. People. <laughs> Yes, I have too. It's all slightly cringy, That's but... That's good, it sounds like an alien. <laughs> a bit sci-fi. Probably, even I'm wrong in trying to actually say it's younger versus older, because I know quite a lot of middle-aged people, particularly in BCS, that are very much involved in the whole social media world, you know. I mean, you interviewed Sue Black. She's yes. fantastic, you yeah, know. Yeah. The way she's really used Twitter and yeah. stuff, it's mm. marvellous. Um, I could, on the other hand, you know, introduce you to some people who perhaps haven't reached their 40th birthday or even 30th birthday who are just, you know, do not want to go anywhere near this technology. It's a bit of an inclination thing as well, isn't I it? I think What's that's right. In, yeah, yeah, I think it is inclination. I think there are 25-year-olds who don't care about technology or information or computers mm. or the internet. Mm. I think you get trapped in these 
ghettos though like for us it seems like everyone our age uses the internet because that's how we know them mm. you know what I mean it's like it's a circular thing um, yeah. and then I suppose if you're um, I don't know if you're a teenager and everyone you know you know because you text each other and you know each other on Facebook there are loads of teenagers mm. I, I imagine who don't use Facebook yeah. um, should we make them <laughs> <laughs> just so we can talk to them that doesn't seem right does it Absolutely, be equally wrong, wouldn't it? You know, not everyone wants to go on the internet every day, and not everyone really wants to get hooked into Facebook. But I think that the public engagement programmes I talked about earlier, which are my particular enthusiasm uh, for my year as president of BCS, the thing there, one of the key things we say is that you know we are now living in an age where you are really going to begin to lose out significantly as um, as a person, as a citizen, mm. if you don't at least understand what's available online, if you don't at least engage to an extent mm. with what's going on in the internet, mm. if you just turn away from it all for, for whatever reason, increasingly your life will be the poorer, you know, both socially and, and economically. Mm. Um, so we are very much trying to highlight the, the benefits. We're not expecting everyone to become geeks. That would be absolutely the wrong thing to do. But um, people really are going to lose out increasingly, you know, if they don't really understand what's out there in that great world that you know very well that's called the web. You know. I think we're on the cusp at the moment. It, it seems like there are services which are currently available to all and very soon will only be available if you're online or have an email address or have access to the internet. And you know, that might start including health services and access to your local GP and, and the ability to you know, submit your water meter reading. There's all sorts of... Um... There are. And now that you know, is a really tough one, isn't it? Because with all the cutbacks that there are going to have to be, uh, given the economic position we find ourselves in, it is so much cheaper to do a lot of these things online. And yet, are you actually going to disenfranchise a large sector of society? Mm. So that's a real tricky one. It's a tough one. And it feels like in five or ten years, uh, then, uh, you know, if Martha Lane Fox uh, mm. does what she's setting out to do, then you can pull the plug on non-digital um, engagement with, with society. But at the moment, you can't. So, the, you know, the... the Public service actually having to work in two ways at once, bringing people online, but also providing services in a way that works for the people who still aren't. Mm-hmm. It's a very strange time we live in, really. It's the kind of the last, the last remnants of a non-digital culture still clinging on. That's quite- <laughs> Elizabeth Sparrow, thank you so much for coming and talking to us. It's been really interesting. Thanks, I've really enjoyed it. Thanks ever so much. Goodbye. Goodbye. You've been listening to Shift Run Stop. You can follow us on Twitter at Shift Run Stop. Visit the website shiftrunstop.co.uk and send an email to podcast at shiftrunstop.co.uk.